upon one of the truths and one of the matters that you and I find in the wonderful Word of God. You know, isn't it amazing how that in the Bible, this book that you and I have been given by the God of heaven, it has within it the information. It has within it the teaching that will address any issue, any particular matter of concern that you and I might have. It is in that regard that today, why don't we give some thought about this question at least. What does the Bible teach? What does it say about social, alcohol, social drinking in light of that particular approach? I think that you and I, as we at least give some reflective thoughts to it, should admit that you and I know how strong the motivation and how strong the pursuit of the world is in light of this already. The world has its answer. We aren't interested in the world's answer. We only want to know what does the Bible say. Could we be fair enough to say that if the Bible upholds and supports and encourages even matters connected to the social drinking of alcohol, you and I have nothing against it to say. We only want to ask what does God think and what is it that He has said. But on the other hand, if it is the case that you and I find within the inspired Word of God those things that would not only cause us to question that which the world would say, but that God's feelings are pretty clear and they are against it, that you and I also will lay down any support. We will lay down any approach you and I might otherwise have. We only want to be those who, like Paul, will ask, What saith the Scripture? Romans 4 verse 3. For that reason, these introductory thoughts on this next slide merely try to make that a statement with this additional thought. This topic, I think many could say, would occupy a place of vitality. And by that I mean just give consideration, if you would, to the number of individuals, the number of souls who are impacted in one way or another by it. About the middle of that slide, I've at least listed the following things. Wouldn't you agree there are millions upon millions of Americans alone, not counting those in foreign countries, that seemingly have not the slightest issue with the social consumption of alcohol? Not only that, you and I have come to find that though at a time there was a, at least a rather narrow group of places at which it could be purchased, now you can go to your local Dollar General store, Walmart, any number of other places, grocery stores among others, and easily find all the access you might wish. You might notice the next thought is this one. As you give thought to some of the fellows that go with this topic, those two should at least be mentioned. Many studies could be listed, and you and I need not devote the time of our consideration today only to listing these. But if you were to take the time to look at some of the governmental statistics, who, of course, keep up through the law enforcement agencies, the connection between those who are arrested for or at least pursued in light of alcohol and the accomplishing issues that are there, be it family problems, spousal abuse, murder, various other kinds of things, how many of them have alcohol included? It's a rather staggering percentage. Two final thoughts on that particular slide would be this one. It goes without saying that alcohol has at least a role to play in a number of dissolutions of the home. That is to say, this home is not only far beneath what it ought to be in the sight of God, but the partners, in light of the givenness of one or both to alcohol, find themselves living in such problems that they finally call it quits. 
for that reason, let's close that slide by noting this. We simply, as already noted, would just ask, what does the Bible say? And for that reason, that which we're going to discuss does not rest with merely your wisdom or mine, nor does it rest with the considered opinion of scholars upon earth. The source goes much beyond that. As the God of heaven would tell us in, first, in Psalm 119, verse 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so just as was the case with Job and so many others, to have question of what does the Word of God say, you and I simply today will strive to ask the same. And so some initial thoughts. I phrase it that way just so that there are a few matters you and I could list initially so that these could thus be matters of reference when we need them a bit later in our study today. These initial thoughts begin like this. There are very few people who will openly endorse and approve complete and total inebriation. That is to say, you drink as much as you want, as often as you want. There aren't very many that will uphold that because it's easy to see the kind of health challenges as well as challenges to those that know the person. How many times have you known someone who couldn't hold a job because they showed up too often drunken? How many times have you found someone whose health began to be greatly challenged because of so much alcohol over such a long period of time? How many times have you known of a wife who under the burden of a drunken husband so oftentimes found herself on the losing end of a physical battle, on the losing end of other matters that not only challenged her and the forthrightness of the family, but the integrity and the consistency that's supposed to go with it? It might be fair to say, in light of all of that, there aren't many people that I have ever encountered that will openly approve of and at least condone that. But the feelings are very different when it comes to just social consumption. After work, I just want to have a beer with the guys. At the house, my wife and I just want to have a bottle of wine in the fridge so we can enjoy it with our meal. I just want to be able to go out and have a little bit for lunch with my compatriots at work. I'm not getting drunken, you see. I'm just having a little. And surely there's nothing wrong with that. Are you sure? Are any of us sure about that? Because again, you'll begin to find that though nearly everyone is opposed to that total inebriation, there are very few that will stand up to oppose social consumption. In fact, I have even encountered more than one preacher who will stand in a pulpit and who will use verses like Colossians 2.16 and say, There it is! It says, Don't judge a man by what he drinks. That means if I want to drink it, I'll do it. And God says it's all right. May I say that man's lying. He's taking a text completely out of its context and using it to teach nothing about what was in the mind of Paul or in the Holy Spirit who delivered it. Surely in those lights, we need to rethink this pretty strongly and not just allow some man, some gentleman, some group of people to lead us to a conclusion that might damn our soul. At the bottom of that opening slide, as we've already noted, what saith the Scripture? There are many things that might be stated about connecting matters to this subject that I freely confess will not nearly have the time this morning to reflect upon all of them, but perhaps a sufficient number of them to help us be strengthened 
and to encourage us in the light of what the Word of God does say. At the bottom of that slide, could I say this? There is no disagreement at all from anybody in any source. That which makes alcohol do what it does is ethyl alcohol. And it's a drug. No one can deny that. It has all the considerations and all the characteristics and all of that which even the agencies of our government would agree serve in that role. For that reason, when you and I give thought to this, the argument that you and I might could make, if anyone would wish to do so, about defending this, it would be exactly the same as defending marijuana, exactly the same as defending heroin, exactly the same as defending LSD or anything else. A drug is a drug is a drug. And if you want to defend the social consumption of alcohol, same argument's going to work with only minor modification to the defending of a lot of other things socially. As you transition to the next slide with me, we need to then give thought to what does the Word of God have to say? These introductory thoughts have only been preparatory. Our interest continues to be, does God's Word say anything about this? If it does... What does it say? You might begin by noting that the whole issue of alcohol is a rather old one. It's not that if. It's not as though our society is the first one to wrestle with it. It's not as if even modern times are the first ones to wrestle with it. We first encountered in Genesis 9, in the ninth chapter of the 1,189 Bible chapters. It's a fairly old occurrence. Not only there do we find that nonetheless than Noah himself became affected by this. You might well recall that he isn't by any means the only one. The days of Lot. We find in Genesis 19 another rather sad set of events connected to what easily included alcohol. Surely we could go beyond that and list many, many, many other Bible occurrences. But you'll notice near the top of that slide, one of the first things we must put out of our mind is to read the word wine as it occurs in the Bible the same way that modern society would utilize it. Isn't it true? You and I encounter the word wine, be it on a billboard, be it in a paper, a magazine, be it in some other context, and it is automatically presupposed. It is assumed that it's alcoholic because that's the way you and I use the word today. And if we mean to say that which is not alcoholic, we call it something different. Grape juice, perhaps some other kind of terminology. But may I quickly point out that in the times that the Bible was written, the words were not distinguished. And that means when you and I encounter the word wine in the Bible, we cannot assume it's alcoholic. In fact, we do great disservice to the biblical text if we assume that it is or that it isn't, because it can be either one. And the only way to know is by way of the context in which that passage and that reference is found. Again, the word by itself does not mean non-alcoholic, nor does it mean alcoholic. The same word was used for both. For that reason, when you and I come to the various texts in the Word of God, we must take careful observation of the context and use the clues which the Word of God provides in order to draw a conclusion about the nature of what that Word is. You may notice about the middle of that slide, it is clear 
And I've listed just a few of the passages for your consideration. There are certain passages which speak overwhelmingly, positively, and with approval about the nature of wine. Now, in light of what I just said, you read those verses, and you and I can appreciate, well, there it is. God approves of it. In fact, He encourages it. But read with care. What do these passages describe? Are we sure they're alcoholic? Or could they be non-alcoholic? In Psalm 104, verse 15, Isaiah 65, verse 8, in Zechariah chapter 10, I will simply use it in our allotted time this morning, cast a bit of a spotlight on the Isaiah 65 text. This passage that highlights the beauty and the blessing and the connectedness of God's provision of wine. Well, surely that speaks with great approval of it, but all we need to do is look at the particulars of how it's described. This wine was in the cluster. That has to be non-alcoholic. It's not fermented while it's still on the grapevine. You see, there's a passage that clearly identifies that wine has reference to, in that case at least, what is non-alcoholic. And yet it is said to be this tremendous, this amazing, this powerfully provided blessing from God. That perhaps is characteristic of some of those others that occur that at least remind us that the word wine which was used in that text is clearly not the kind which brings upon mankind the features that you and I recognize in the inebriating variety. But you might also notice that there are other passages that openly condemn, that openly disapprove, that openly show forth the displeasure of God toward alcohol. How can this be? Some verses say it's great. Some verses say it's abominable. Some verses say God provided it. Some verses say God didn't provide it. Some verses say that it is good for man, and some say that it is not. But the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Nowhere does it contradict itself. It is God's truth. As you look at those passages that describe God's disapproval, I've listed for you a sampling of them as well. Proverbs 20, verse number 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Clearly, here is one that leads to deception. This wine leads to a behavior that involves brawling. It leads to a kind of disposition that is opposed to what God would uphold. In addition to that, in Isaiah 5, verse 11, the people of Israel were motivated by this, and in pursuit of it, they lacked and failed to carry out that which was the bidding of God. In Habakkuk 2.15, a woe was pronounced upon anybody that would give his neighbor wine to drink. That's pretty strong. Do you suppose God would be against giving someone grape juice? Do you suppose He'd be against someone giving that attribute in liquid? But yet a woe was pronounced upon anybody that would give his neighbor wine to drink. It might well be that we can begin to see the distinction that is the Bible makes reference to and describes these two. The distinction has to do with the characteristic of its alcoholic nature. The ones that God provides blessing in light of are those which have not been clouded with that feature of alcoholic thrust and those which, of course, God has condemned are these which fall on that other category. As you come near the bottom of that slide with me, 
could I at least point out the two principal words in the original languages that are occurring in all of these passages. There is more than one Hebrew word that's translated wine or some variant of it. In fact, there's over, there's well over, almost exactly two dozen of them. And yet the principal one is yayin, Y-A-Y-I-N. And again, that same word is used in light of both alcoholic and the non-alcoholic variety. And one must look with caution to the nature of that context. As far as the New Testament, the Greek word is oinos, O-I-N-O-S, and one more time. That word too is used to describe both of these varieties of wine. As we develop that perhaps more thoroughly on this next slide, I've asked you to at least rehearse with me some of those conclusions we at least mentioned in passing earlier. That famous text, that very notable text in Psalm 104, as well as Isaiah 65, wherein that wine that was so highly commended by God was obviously non-alcoholic. But on the other hand, the warnings against certain wine are so prevalent and so strong that I wanted to simply record for you the exact wording in the King James translation. Borrowing the words of Isaiah 28:7, erred through wine and through strong drink are out of the way. Here's a reference to people who erred. So they didn't do what was right. They didn't pursue what was noble and godly and approved by the God of heaven. They erred. And what motivated it, what was at least a strong part of it, was wine. In addition to that, we've already noted that famous refrain of Solomon in Proverbs chapter 20, wine is a mocker. It'll lie to you. It'll tell you what actually is not the case. It will lead you to believe what factually is not true. It clouds one's judgment. It causes one to see things differently than the way that they really are. That's what wine does. Surely in that connection, I've asked you to notice that that Hebrew word for mocker, it literally has within it the concept of what is abominable. What is so hated by the authority figure of the God of heaven? And it is not to be pursued, but it is to be avoided. If wine is characterized in ways like this, and that wine has these characteristic discussions of this alcoholic thrust, then ought not we to take great care and ask pretty carefully, is the amount included? Some, I agree, would be quick to say, well, that only means I can't have a lot of it. Can I have a little of it? I enjoy it so, someone might say. Can I just have a little? The only thing you and I can do about that is continue to ask as God further describes it. And as He further provides us information about it, what does He say? As we turn the slide and go into the next one, thankfully we do have information that is of tremendous helpfulness. Brother John read earlier from Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Would you please be turning there? As we find ourselves in the heart of the New Testament, we are no longer giving particular thought to those Old Testament warnings. We are asking rather carefully, what about the New Testament description? 
In Ephesians chapter 5, we find a number of presentations about living, daily living, living for the Lord, what that involves and what it does not involve. You might notice just prior to this, beginning in verse number 15, there's the admonition, see that you walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. That trio of verses, verses 15 to 17, have just reminded us, live wisely. Don't live like a fool. Make sure you redeem the time. Make sure you live in such a way that you're getting the most out of what time God gives you. Don't waste it. Don't use it foolishly. Don't direct it in a pathway that leads to benefits which are not wholesome. Oh, that's easy words of wisdom, isn't it? You may have noticed in verse number 17, be not unwise. Now you'll notice, unwisdom connects to not understanding what the will of the Lord is. I think all of us would readily agree that to be wise, we need to be fully conversant with what the will of God is. We can't live in this world wisely and live in defiance of the Word of God. The only wisdom in life is going to be found connected with doing what God says in the way that He says for the reason that He says. And with that as a background, look at verse 18. And be not drunk with wine. That's pretty strong. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. There's something to be said on the one hand about being filled with the Spirit, but it stands opposed to being drunk with wine. They're just opposite, you see. You cannot be filled with the Spirit and be drunk with wine. So now we begin to ask, what is this reference to being drunk with wine? What was it that Paul was insisting to that Ephesian congregation? The first thing you and I might notice, what I've invited you to think about on that slide, what does this word mean? Be not drunk with wine. It's easy enough, again, in light of our modern language to say, well, drunk means completely smashed. So God just says, don't be completely smashed. And they infer from this, well, I could have a little, apparently. In fact, they'll even look at the same verse and say, wherein is excess? Well, there it is. As long as I have a little and don't have it excessively, there's no problem with this verse. May I say, that's not good exegesis. And that's just a fancy word that has relation to biblical interpretation. That's not what the text says. That's not what the text means. I have invited you to notice one of the definitions. To be drunk with wine. That word means to begin to be softened. It is in every case in the Word of God a reference to a process. That is to say, from the first consideration until its conclusion. As you and I make a comment about that and think about its implication, it's extremely broad, isn't it? Paul says, don't you begin to be softened, is literally what he said. The first drink begins the process. The first part of the first drink begins the process. 
those who have done studies have found that even a portion of one drink, the person's judgment is not as sound and as immediate and as strong as it was before the first drink was taken. Scientists know today there is no minimum limit at which the effects of alcohol are unappreciated, are unobserved. Paul says, don't you begin, Ephesians, to begin the process of being softened. The word smashed is not a good way to put that. I used it for emphasis because that's the way many of us today have so often heard drunk means completely inebriated, but that's not the meaning here. And that's not the meaning in the other places you and I encounter it either in the Word of God. In connection to that idea, drunkenness, as I've invited you to notice, marks a process. It is a state in a process that continues. And for that reason, think about all these commandments then that tell us not to be involved in drunkenness. For now, as you and I appreciate that word, we know in all of those cases we are reminded that we are not given approval by God to even begin the process of being softened by alcohol or for that matter by other agencies that can bring about that same state. For instance, in Romans 13, 13, aren't we there ordered, commanded not to allow ourselves to be drunken? Now that commandment is so strong that we're going to add to it in just a moment because additional verses will in fact elaborate. In 1 Corinthians 6 verse 10 and Galatians 5 verse 21, we're told in that latter one especially that those that are drunken will not go to heaven. They will not be admitted into the kingdom of God. Doesn't that make this a matter of great urgency and strength? In addition to that, I hope we'll never forget that there's a particular commandment that God has given that is a commandment that's worthy of reflection. It's seen more than once in the New Testament record. I've listed all of them, every single occurrence. Why don't we just select a couple of them and give some thought to them? In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse number 6, as you come near the ending chapter of the 1 Thessalonian letter, this commandment is found. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Now, quite often that phrase, let us, is used in the Word of God as an emphasis of commandment, as an order which God has delivered. Let us, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, let us watch. That's easy to understand. To live in a way of vigilance, in a way of care, mindful of the ever-presentness of the devil. But then he says this, let us be sober. That's another one of those words that man has co-opted for his own use. Today, you and I hear the word sober, we think person who at least is in some way not completely given to alcohol. They at least have enough degree of soberness to be able to drive or to do something, although they may be under somewhat of the influence. But now let's face it, our interest, as always, isn't what modern man may use as far as the meaning of that word. What does the word mean when the Holy Spirit used it here? I've asked you to notice on that slide, as I quote from a Greek lexicon, that is to say, those who by authority, by study of the ancient languages, assert to us that the meaning of that word to be sober 
means to not be given in any way to wine. That's what the word means. And so when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, when he wrote to the Thessalonians, when Peter later would write to the strangers scattered abroad, the message was the same. And in 1 Peter 5, 8, it reads like this. Be sober, be vigilant. For your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. The very time you and I find ourselves motivated or under the influence of some degree of alcohol, don't you know we're making it an easier path for the devil to get to us? Our judgment's clouded, our appreciation is not real, and the circumstances of our allotment have been called into question because our judgment is just not there. It's one of the very times the devil could have a heyday with any of us. Is it any wonder that these New Testament verses have encouraged us and reminded us that what men may so often think from the modern perspective of these definitions isn't consistent with the Holy Spirit's presentation? In the conclusion to that slide, it brings us to this one. 1 Peter 4 verse 3 is one of the last passages to which I'll call your attention during our time at least this morning. Because here, even the Apostle Peter, our references so far have been to Paul, notice in the Ephesian letter, in the First Thessalonian epistle, but even Peter had something to say about this. Would you please note with me 1 Peter 4? I'll begin reading in verse number 3. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. And so as often the case was, that here we have an inspired writer pointing out that in the former days of life, there may well have been approaches, pursuits, activities, and he lists some of them. He says, here's what folks would have done. They lived in lasciviousness. They lived in lusts. In the Gentile world, they pursued matters connected to abominable idolatries. That's three out of the six. Please note the other three. The first one is excess of wine. We know what that means. That literally is the word excess, and it has to do with an overflowing abundance of this. And so, admittedly, there would be a reference to those that were smashed, those that had drunken a lot of alcoholic beverage. But that leaves two more in the list. He then lists revelings, and he finally lists banquetings. It's likely the case that both of those words are a bit unfamiliar to us in that our modern English language doesn't use much of either one of them, at least in this context and in this way. And for that reason, I've tried to provide some definitions. First of all, banquetings has reference to drinking parties. Social events in which there's an access to and a usage of and a pursuit of what included drinking. Now, I'd be quick to say, I don't believe it could have been milk. And I don't believe it would have been water. And I don't believe it would have been grape juice. But then he adds this, revelings. Revelings are, by definition, these drinking parties that go late in the evening. 
And quite frankly, some translations simply say drinking with no further presentation of description. Is this not, at the very least, a strong warning from Peter about that which was the behavior of many and given the kind of strangers to which Peter was writing? It's easy enough to contemplate the warning, and it's a warning that's just as needful today. You see, to drink certain things is hazardous, and I'm not talking about just one's physical health. I mean one's spiritual health. Look at again the way this is worded. Verse number 4, Wherein they think it strange that you run not with them, to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. This is what they had done at one time, but clearly they had stopped. They didn't drink anymore like that. And there were others that now said, You're strange. Why don't you come and enjoy it with us again like you once did? Let's have a night out with the guys. But you see, Peter said they'd stop that. May I say to each of us, the Word of God has a lot to say about this very modern matter of social consumption of alcohol. I believe it'd be fair to comment that there certainly are many that would quickly offer some objections to the conclusion you and I have noted this morning. One of the first ones might be, but look, you're awfully naive. Those people didn't have refrigerators. Those people didn't have mechanisms to prevent fermentation. They had to drink it. That's not so. I could list for you no less than half a dozen techniques the Old Testament world knew. The ancient world knew to prevent fermentation. The quotations are abundant. If they wanted alcohol, they made it. Second objection might well be this one. What about Paul's instruction to Timothy? Didn't Paul tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, 23, Drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake. Well, there you have it. God told that man to drink some. May we never forget the prepositional phrase, For thy stomach's sake. Do you suppose that God would approve of it if there were a medicinal purpose behind it? If a person had a particular issue connected to a stomach that was upset or to some other feature that was a health matter, I would at the very least only say this, that text would only allow us to address the medicinal use of alcohol. And by the way, NyQuil has a lot of it, and many other medicines do too. But the point is, we've been discussing today the social consumption of it, and that's a different matter. Perhaps as you and I close this lesson at this time, our conclusion based on these three passages... 1 Peter chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 5, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 has been rather powerfully presented to draw us this conclusion that although beverage alcohol is rather rampant in society, it's overwhelmingly approved, it is endorsed, the banner of it is lifted highly, you and I have reached a very different conclusion. It is not that the Word of God only condemns an excess literally of its consumption. It condemns the process of any amount of it in light of its social consumption. And you and I, as those that would desire to live pleasingly to God, would strive to maintain our wits about us and to never become under the consideration of the matters related to what alcohol brings in judgment. But today... 
what we would wish to do is use this as an opportunity to remind ourselves that God's Word does have much to say about this and thus many other issues that might be listed as a social matter. Today, we would always wish to extend the invitation of the Lord. It doesn't matter what the sins in life may well be. And you and I know there's a large list of them. But any one of them needs to be forgiven. Any one of them needs to be remitted. And there's only one agency to do it. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. It is His blood that, in fact, allows our sins to be forgiven and taken away. Ephesians 1 verse 7. And it's His blood that, in fact, is able to flow over us and remove the completely the guilt of any of those sins. Today, if you and I find ourselves separated from the Word of God and from the truth and the opportunity of salvation that He offers, it's time to do something about it. It's time to make a decision, a choice, to be on the Lord's side. Do we not read in Romans 8.31? If God be for us, who can be against us? If you and I are on the Lord's side, everything will be fine. But if we choose to live in rebellion to Him, to live on the devil's side, it is not going to work out well. Life will bring its matters, and ultimately we shall end this life in doom and recognizing that all was for naught. Today, as that Lord's invitation is extended, if you would wish to become a Christian, won't you believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, make confession of His name, and be baptized? But if you have known the way of righteousness, and you've lived in accordance to it, but as of the moment... Other matters in life have come your way, and you now live distant from the Lord. It is not the Lord that moved. It is not His will that changed. It is decisions that you made, and, but He is welcome so much to want you back. Today, we'd be honored to assist you if you would make confession of those sins, make repentance of them, then we would be honored to pray on your behalf. Today, if we could be of some assistance, won't you come while together we stand and sing the selected song?